down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, with so many competing demands on farmers, we explore the future of food production in Ireland. Professor Alan Matthews explains where our agricultural policies are headed. Davy Phillip and Ollie Moore of Clock Jordan Community Farm discuss community-supported agriculture. Cork farmer Rob Coleman gives us his take on conservation farming. And Minister of State Pippa Hackett is my guest this week for My Green Life, where she'll tell us about her journey into organic farming and beyond. It's time to head down to earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now, with so many changes coming down the pipeline from the EU's new farm-to-fork strategy and the environmental and economic challenges that are facing farming today, it's time to look at what might be in store for the future of our food. My first guest is Ireland's foremost expert on the EU's common agricultural policy and how it relates to Irish farms. Alan Matthews is Professor Emeritus of the European Agricultural Policy Program at Trinity College Dublin. Welcome, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me, Cara. Alan, the European Union's common agricultural policy was launched nearly 50 years ago, and it was designed to support farmers and improve agricultural productivity while also helping to manage natural resources and preserve rural economies. And that all sounds idyllic, but I imagine quite difficult. So you've stated in the past that despite all of the reforms, the common agricultural policy is still broken and needs to be fixed. Uh, What do you think have been the biggest failures of the CAP to date? I think it is important to recognize that reform has taken place. So um, older listeners will certainly recall uh, the stories of beef mountains and uh, uh, wine lakes and so on that uh, arose as a result of the uh, the very high price supports that uh, were paid to European farmers in the uh, 70s and 80s. But uh, there has been, uh, you know, a lot of change has occurred. Uh, market prices uh, for Europe European farmers are now by and large at world market levels Um, and the the cap is really an income transfer program at this point in time. It still of course remains uh, a very significant part of the EU budget, uh, around a third of the total Um, and it remains uh, a fundamental cornerstone for farm incomes in Ireland. Uh, So on average uh, around 70% of family farm income is actually a transfer Uh, from the cap, either under what we call the Pillar 1, the direct payments, or or Pillar 2, the rural uh, development programs. And and here we would include uh, agri-environment schemes. So uh, the cap has changed, but it is still uh, not fit for purpose. Um, uh, And in particular, uh, we, well, not when I say we, uh, agriculture farmers generally in Ireland and across Europe uh, are faced with um, increasing environmental and and climate uh, 
challenges. And the CAP really needs to uh, step up and to address these uh, in a much more targeted way than it has done uh, to this point. So in October of last year, the EU ministers agreed on a general approach post-2020 for the CAP reform package with more focus on environmental measures and supposedly a fair way of distributing direct payments to farmers. What do you think of the latest reforms in the post-2020 CAP? The latest reform proposal, uh, of course, was put forward by the Irish Commissioner, Phil Hogan, who was uh, Commissioner for Agriculture at the time. And it had two big ideas. One uh, was to do with the governance of the CAP, uh, which had become and has become uh, extremely complex to administer, uh, both for national uh, administrations, but also uh, from the farmer point of view. Uh, so the, the governance idea was uh, to restore or to give back uh, greater flexibility to uh, member states to uh, design their own, if you like, cap plans, uh, their own interventions within a common EU framework. But the, the, the hope was that uh, these interventions would be more uh, suited and more specific uh, to the needs of the individual member states. So that was the governance aspect. And then, as you say, the, the other aspect was to uh, promote a, a sort of a higher environmental ambition in the new cap. So uh, both additional funds and, and also new instruments uh, were, were proposed uh, to encourage member states to use their greater flexibility, but to do so uh, by putting greater, or giving greater priority uh, to uh, the environmental and climate challenges that farmers face. The latest cap reform was supposed to align to the EU's other policies like the Green New Deal, which aspires to climate neutrality by 2050, and then the farm to fork strategy for climate smart agriculture. How well aligned do you think that the cap is to these other EU ambitions? Yeah, I mean, this has certainly been an important bone of contention. Uh, so the uh, Commission's cap reform proposal was made in the middle of 2018. Um, and then we had the new commission uh, take up office in December of 2019. And its flagship proposal was the European Green Deal. And, and uh, it, it was presented as a growth strategy which would help to make Europe uh, the first climate neutral continent by 2050. Uh, and it was built on various legs, the, the, the circular economy uh, from the agricultural and food point of view. Uh, the important initiatives were the, the farm to fork strategy the biodiversity strategy, um, but of course also the European climate uh, law, which will set the net zero target uh, by 2050 into, into legislation. Uh, but these proposals, of course, came after the, uh, the CAP uh, reform uh, itself had been started and, and indeed had been discussed in, in both the uh, Council of Ministers and in the European Parliament. Um, so there has been a question of how to integrate these two processes, which so far have sort of run in parallel with each other rather than in an integrated way. Um, what do you think all these reforms will mean for Irish farming? Will it mean greater expense or lower payments for farmers? 
Well, the budget for the um, uh, for the cap for Ireland has been uh, set, uh, so we know uh, what will uh, uh, be received in transfers over the next seven years. And effectively, uh, the amount has remained constant in in nominal terms. So uh, we know what that budget is. But uh, I suppose the concern amongst farmers might be that uh, they will be asked to do more uh, in terms of the environment. I've indicated some of the uh, directions of travel that the Commission uh, would like to see. Um, so the, the money will stay the same, uh, but the conditions attached to receiving that money uh, are going to be um, uh, increased. Uh, and, and, you know, there are, there are obvious reasons for that, because uh, we do face uh, enormous uh, environmental and climate challenges in, in Ireland that do need to be addressed as a matter of urgency. Ireland's national policy position says we need to strive for carbon neutrality in agriculture without compromising food production. What does this actually mean and how do we reach that ambition? Well, it's clearly, uh, it is a challenge because Ireland is uh, is actually rather unique amongst European member states in the share of its total emissions, uh, which uh, come from the agricultural sector. It's almost a third uh, of the total. So if you have um, an ambition to achieve net uh, zero uh, emissions by 2050, as we will be writing into our own climate law uh, shortly, um, that clearly has implications for uh, the agricultural sector. Um, there are, uh, there are uh, technical uh, options which can help uh, to, um, uh, to move us uh, towards that path, uh, but it, they're certainly not going to be uh, sufficient. Um, and what's important uh, to take on board here is that there are important synergies between the measures we can take to uh, reduce emissions from a climate perspective uh, and the measures that will also help to uh, protect and maintain biodiversity and improve water quality. So, for example, if we can reduce nitrogen, uh, the use of nitrogen fertilizer um, and indeed also organic manure, uh, uh, this will uh, reduce obviously um, nitrous oxide emissions, that's good for climate, but it will also help to improve water quality. So, we do need to look in particular particular at the expansion in the dairy herd, um, uh, which has occurred as a result of the elimination of milk quotas. Um, it seems to me clear that uh, dairy cow numbers in, in particular parts of the country have now uh, exceeded, if you like, the carrying capacity of, 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 of the land. That's not to say that uh, there won't be um, uh, technological innovations in future that will maybe help to, to, to maintain those numbers, but as of today, uh, the pressure uh, of those numbers on the environment is, is simply too great. And what's your view on the argument that if we limit production in things like dairy or beef in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and improve biodiversity, that these products will actually be produced in other countries with worse environmental impacts. There is certainly a, a, a danger that this uh, would would happen if uh, clearly if there is uh, the same level of consumption uh, in 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 uh, of, of these products. Um, whether it would actually increase emissions 
is of course an empirical matter. It would depend on where the increase in beef production, uh, for example, uh, uh, would take place. Um, uh, there are certainly uh, other uh, beef exporters uh, where the emissions intensity uh, is more or less the same as in Ireland. Um, um, and there are areas, for example, in Latin America, uh, where uh, beef production is associated, for example, with deforestation, uh, where emissions intensities are clearly much higher. So it would depend on you know, where the production um, uh, would take place. Uh, but there still would be some, uh, some gain. Um, and a lot will depend on the smart design of the policies that we will, uh, that we will introduce here. Because the intention is not, in a sense, to, 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 to punish the industry. The, the, the intention of uh, measures that are introduced is to encourage innovation, to encourage farmers to think of how they can actually design their farming systems to both produce food and to limit their environmental impact. And I think there's, we're still at the very beginning of this journey. Um, uh, and there's lots of potential there if uh, farmers uh, and, and the, the backup research and advisory services actually put their mind uh, to, to, to uh, resolving these challenges. Well, that gives me hope. Professor Alan Matthews, thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. Up next, we'll find out how communities are leading the way in supporting more sustainable farming. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. That was Hungry Planet by the Birds, and you're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. It may seem like we're at the mercy of European bureaucrats in fixing our broken food system, but my next guests are changing the system themselves through community-supported agriculture. Dr. Ollie Moore and Davy Phillip are part of Clock Jordan Community Farm, based at Clock Jordan Eco Village in Tipperary, one of my favorite places in Ireland. Welcome to the show, Ollie and Davy. Hi, Cara. Thanks, Cara. Good to be here. Ali, the Clock Jordan Community Farm uses biodynamic and organic farming methods to reduce the environmental impact of producing food. But the farm is going beyond that because it implements this cooperative approach between the farmer and the community. And this is a topic that you lecture in at the Center for Cooperative Studies at University College Cork. Can you explain how this co-op model works in practice? Yeah, well, the, the farm here in Clock Jordan uh, is a pretty much a partnership. So, And it's member-driven. So some community supported agriculture initiatives uh, start with farmers and some start with communities. In our case, it started with the community. So the community basically comes up with the resources to fund the farm is our particular model. So we, we basically have you know, dozens of people come together to rent land in the eco village and to pay farmers uh, a wage. And that's the model we've had for, for 10 years. Uh, we don't just pay a farmer a wage though. The farmer would be a member of the community and. We have participatory budgeting. We have, um, you know, a say, and we participate in the sort of the big harvest days and the planting days and so on. And um, yeah, so the farmers are. We have two farmers at the moment, um, and they basically are just guaranteed uh, an income. And we have maybe a dozen volunteers as well from around Ireland and Europe uh, who are on le learning and training courses. And then we have, you know, a number of members as well who have part-time work with the farm doing education and 
what are activities. So it's actually a hive of uh, a decent level of activity um, that you can have, I suppose, in COVID because it is still a food producing uh, business. So, you know, it, it functions as before, but at the same time, it's uh, on, for six acres, it's a, it's a vibrant kind of place with a lot of agroecological practices. So the community essentially pays the farmers a salary and then does the community get to decide what's grown? Well, it's always a negotiation uh, and it depends on the um, the farmer. Some farmers, um, if they've been there a long time and they are, you know, have been in the community a long time, they'll, they'll be leading on that very strongly on what's grown. And in any case, the rotation um, kind of is very important as well for that. But we, we grow up to 50 different crops really in a given year. And it's, yeah, it would be my approach. Everyone has a different approach. My approach is what suits the land and I'll eat it <laughs> um, based on the rotation and so on. Uh, we have little bits of input on the amount of, you know, salads in winter we would have in, from polytunnels, but we wouldn't have as many polytunnels as a market garden kind of set up because they're very driven about high value products and so on. We're not thinking about high value products. We're thinking about sustainable food production, regenerative food production, really. So you're supplying fresh produce to about 70 households through the farm. And then you've also extended uh, that subscription model in the eco-village to things like a bread club and an egg club and a milk club. So how do those systems work for the community and the producer compared to a conventional distribution model? Well, yeah, it's it's really nice and informal, really, the way it's all developed. But it's it's great for the producers because they just have a guaranteed market. Uh, they've even got money up front in some cases. So it's it's just that you can get your 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 meat, your well, your your milk and your bread and your eggs, uh, and sometimes mushrooms, and it depends on, on what's available, but you can get these things basically delivered to your door. Um, but the farmer is getting cutting out all the middlemen. So like it's a, it's very direct and the income is levels will be higher, you know, per unit for the producer. But just having a, a guaranteed market. Uh, just prepaid in some cases means you can work from that basis as well. So you can factor it into your into your bookkeeping. Basically, you can you know go to the bank with it, as the phrase is. You know, so you can you know it's having a guaranteed income um, means you can plan better and borrow better and all kinds of things. Davy, listeners might think that this kind of system would only work in an eco village with that kind of cooperation, but you're now taking this model online. So tell us how this open food network works. Yeah, one of the things we did at the farm last year, just the week before COVID, we, we held our annual Feeding Ourselves event that, that attracts progressive farmers and food co-ops from around the country. And we introduced OFN, the Open Food Network. Now, the Open Food Network is an open source online market platform that enables farmers and food producers to sell directly through virtual shops that they run or food hubs, which are really virtual farmers markets. So the the OFN gives people access to secure and healthier ways to get their food directly from the local producers, which in COVID time can sometimes be constrained with closures, uh, shop closures, market closures. Um, And what we see now is that this has grown. I mean, we introduced it last March after the COVID lockdowns, the week later, we came together with um, different co-ops and we've established the OFN in Ireland. So it's a platform that producers can visit and put their profile up. And now we're working with nine hubs across Ireland uh, to build their capacity to be 
distribution points for these virtual farmers markets. So now the OFN is established in 20 countries and it's a growing movement of farmers and community food initiatives that are really working to transform local food systems, but also build resilient regional food economies. And I think that dependence uh, on long supply chains needs to be reversed and we need to see more livelihoods and jobs for uh, more people in food and agriculture in Ireland. All of this work is guided by this concept of food sovereignty. So can you explain what that means for people who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, food sovereignty was coined by Via Campesina in the 70s. It's an international movement of small farmers and landless people. And really as a response to the dominance of the corporate control of our food and agriculture systems. It's the principle really that we've got the fundamental right to choose the food we consume, uh, but now more and more how it's produced and even how it's distributed. So for us uh, in the sort of systems that Ollie explained, the subscription systems, community supported agriculture, food co-ops, uh, this, this approach to food sovereignty is an invitation to really develop a culture that prioritizes our health and our well-being and create systems that enable us to support farmers and local food producers growing food in a healthy and regenerative way. And now with these new exchange and market mechanisms that we could really take autonomy over and more control over the way our food is distributed and how we access it. And in a time of a, a rapidly changing climate and the need to reduce our impact, our food miles, our packaging, our waste, we see this approach to sort of a practice of food sovereignty as a way forward. Ali, we talked to our last guest, Professor Alan Matthews, about the European Union's common agricultural policy and how it might not live up to its promises to benefit the environment. Now, you've been quite active in CAP reform through the ARC 2020 EU project. How do you think we could make CAP work for people and nature? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a real disappointment, I suppose, how um, every time there's talk of CAP reform and all that happens really is that Direct payments are still the dominant thing, and that defines the whole landscape. It defines, you know, like the small mixed horticultural producers get nothing really from CAP. Um, so it, it really should be more about making resilient rural communities and adapting to the huge climate and biodiversity crises we have. And it's not about that. The way it's being done is more about greenwashing, really, I would say, unfortunately. I mean, the, the European Green Deal, which has the farm to fork and biodiversity strategies, is a step in the right direction. And as CAP tries to align with that, that would be good. But I suppose that, yeah, there's, there's a new thing called eco schemes, which should be part of the new CAP. Um, that has potential once it's not sort of greenwashed, because there's talk about things like precision farming being in there and animal welfare being in there. I mean, these are potentially okay things in certain contexts. I mean, animal welfare is a, is a requirement, but precision farming is just about efficiency, really. So they shouldn't be eco-schemes because eco-schemes are one-year schemes from pillar one. Um, so really it should be things that have verifiable impacts. Uh, things like, and this is the suggestion from people like Alan Matthews actually as well, has been, uh, you know, crop rotations, non-use non of pesticides by tillage farmers and leaving stubble in the fields. Um, and that's an interesting one, actually, leaving stubble in the fields, because it means the farm, the tillage farmer has, she has less costs in um, mineral fertilizers. The production of mineral fertilizers and transport of mineral fertilizers is bad for the environment. 
uh, but it means he's bringing or she's bringing nutrition into the ground, into the soil, which is great. And it's also um, good for birds in the winter because they can get um, feed from the, the residues. Now that will have an impact potentially on, on beef farmers and straw availability and so on. So there are impacts and things have to be taught out properly, but well taught out eco schemes uh, would be a good step. Things that can be done and measured in a short term um, of time. So like just talking about things like carbon farming being an eco scheme as well. I, don't, I think carbon farming is very much a long term thing. But, you know, leaving stubble in the fields is the kind of thing that would actually, you know, help with a carbon farming type approach anyway. Davy, you're exposed to two very different food production models every day. The conventional system with the intensive agriculture and the grocery store as the sort of middleman between farmers and consumers. And then this very different model through the open food network. So based on your unique perspective, what do you think Ireland's food system will look like in the future? Well, I could imagine more people engaged in uh, food and agriculture in a way that reduces their environmental impact and restores biodiversity. I could see more community-supported agriculture, food co-ops, and ways to support our local farmers and producers. And I think with new approaches uh, like the Open Food Network, we can shorten supply chains and build that resilience uh, into our regions through local food webs of small producers, food co-ops, food hubs, buying clubs, community supported farms. Now, this will not be easy. What would make that happen? I think uh, we need policy and grants directed to support farmers to do the right thing, to farm regeneratively. I think we need incentives and funding for communities and social enterprises um, to really take advantage of a, a local food movement and the need and, and for that. But I think at the heart of it, it really takes people with an understanding of why we need to do this, why we need to reduce our impact and build the resilience of our local communities, provide more jobs and livelihoods and security for our farmers and local food producers. So it's a cultural change as well as policy and funding changes. My thanks to Ollie Moore and Davy Phillip for their inspirational work on community-supported agriculture. Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Minister of State Pippa Hackett about her green life. But before that, my next guest puts policy into practice on his beautiful farm near Canturk in North Cork. Rob Coleman is a grain farmer with a passion for soil and conservation agriculture. Hello, Rob. Hi, Cara. How are you? Good, thanks. I had the pleasure of visiting your farm a few years ago and meeting your father, the legendary rally car driver, Billy Coleman. And I noticed, first of all, your farm looks very different to any farm I've ever seen with a lot more plants and flowers than usual. But that's because both you and your dad have a somewhat experimental approach to farming. So can you tell us more about that approach? Yeah, that was a great visit, Cara. To be fair, um, a lot of people talk about farming and have strong environmental views. You came down and you visited and you actually saw what was going on. And while we didn't agree 100 percent on everything, we had great discussion. And I think I learned a lot from you. And I think you were very open to the ideas that we were talking about. Yeah, Dad and I farm um, cereal mostly, and we have some sheep and cattle as well. And um, this all sort of started way back in, in the late 90s. Dad is quite progressive and a real lover of the land and a pure farmer and always has been. And um, he, he sort of started getting away from ploughing. There was a movement at the time to get into some minimum tillage, which is less soil disturbance. And it's supposed to be, you know, better for earthworms. And, and, and it was kind of a movement at the time that a lot of people took a look at. And then from there, he started looking at a lot of organic manures. He didn't like the idea of just bag fertilizer. So um, I was sort of, you know, around and working and sort of listening. And uh, 
over the course of time that that kept evolving and we've built an awful lot of what he did when he used to chop all the straw and he used to sort of you know definitely have a different approach to the conventional way of doing things which is just the plow you plow it and you sow it and you use bag fertilizer which is you know the model that's been there for a long long time farming was just mostly about you know growing food and and, and having a good income and now it's kind of evolved into something more than that where there's a burden now sort of environmentally as every industry now has to do more than just that so uh in more recent times we we've developed from from the mintil and the um and the organic manures into um a better rotation with uh with a lot of winter and spring cropping we grow a lot of beans as bread crops and and oats and we have uh, cover crops which are a huge part of our our business now and we've seen huge benefits in that um we've we've moved into some of the elements of of conservation agriculture or regenerative agriculture um i'm aware your listeners mightn't be very familiar with some of the terms used um more or less a kind of a more biological approach to farming where we're trying to feed the, the soil biome as much as possible in our farming practices and how we do that then there's there's lots of different ways and, and depending on how technical and how much time we have we can speak about you know dropping aphicide from from the program of, uh, of crop protection um, using composts and you know working with our organic manures to put more biology into them so they're more stable and more sort of available as, as a kind of a ready meal for the soil um, we, we've started balancing our soil getting away from the standard NPK method of farming into looking at your calcium magnesium ratio in your soil looking at uh, my, my other elements like uh, zinc and boron and copper um, just to, I suppose to allow the soil to breathe it's actually a, a living system is what we're dealing with it's not just a sort of a benign medium for for growing things using fertilizer it's actually um we're farming we're not mining we're not extracting we're actually you know it's a cycle so so working with that you've got a lot going on but your family's been implementing these changes slowly over the last two decades or so so what are the biggest changes you've seen as a result of your efforts um i guess you know dad has always been very soil conscious and he always dug with the spade and i think you know farmers work an awful lot with machinery and you know we're sort of very much involved in an industry that has you know large sheds and and, and big gear and, and and you know there's an awful lot of things that are cool in farming but really are our main resource is the soil and and if you sort of lose focus on that you know everything else is built on top of that foundation so really when uh, when we started sort of evolving into some of these practices and we're very much on a learning curve we're sort of uh, open-minded and and trying things and and it's 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 sort of um it's evolving all the time and would have seen huge benefits, firstly, in the cover crops. And the, the basis of the cover crops is that you don't just uh, grow a monoculture. If you look at, uh, at the, 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 the nature, the way it does things, there's never one thing growing in, in, any, in any sort of habitat. There's always loads of different roots. And, and actually, there's, there's a symbiosis between roots. And they sort of, uh, plants love other plants. So some go shallow and some go deep. And some are sort of tap roots and some are fixing nitrogen, some like phosphorus. And there's actually a kind of a cooperation between them. So when you bring that biodiversity into the, the, the tillage ground with a cover crop, we're sort of currently on nine or 10 way mix of different species. It sort of uh, enhances the structure of the soil. You can see that almost straight away in the springtime when you go to plant the next crop. And if you get that structure good enough, uh, you, you'll see a huge um, benefit in infiltration and how the, the, the soil behaves in difficult weather. Um, you, you'll see sort of crops easier to grow, less ponding on the land. And uh, I suppose that that's one of the main things, that the huge increase in earthworm size and numbers and how the land takes the weather. Um, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You know, there's, there's lots of challenges here and lots of mistakes made. But I think that, that that's one of the big ones. Just as the soil evolves and as we're sort of evolving with it and learning and keep asking questions, that's been one of the main ones. And even the texture has changed. 
and it's gotten darker as the carbon has increased in the, in the land. You mentioned that your own farm is a, a more diversified system than many farms in Ireland with cereals growing alongside grazing uh, sheep and beef. And that idea of diversification was a concept that the last government actually explored the idea of in their climate action committee and something that you know many countries feel might kind of protect farmers against the risks of climate change. So what do you think is holding back changes in diversifying farm systems more in Ireland? I suppose what holds back change in agriculture is actually something that holds back change everywhere. And uh, and I think it's sort of, um, first of all, is fear. This is a low margin business and farmers are very hardworking people. And, and we're kind of, it's maybe feel a bit of a kind of a farmer bashing going on. And it, it sort of um, feels like, you know, there's, there's more expected of us now, but you have to remember that there's family businesses and, and as these um, changes are kind of coming and, and environmental farming and the environment in general is coming into focus, we, we still have to, first of all, make a living. And uh, if you sort of, you know, leave that out of the solution and you start to impose, you know, some, some measures that farmers, first of all, don't know about, you know, you start to put people in a very difficult position. You know, we're, everybody's environmental awareness is growing. I think that, you know, as farmers, you know, we probably have more that we can do than other industries to improve it. So um, I suppose to answer your question, there's, um, th- th- there's, there's I suppose, uh, a fear around you know the measures that will come because you know with any of these things that we're even trying the first time you do it you're very much in the dark so I think that you know having a, an open mindset and embracing change and, and and doing it carefully and slowly because the rate of change is very important if you try and change too quickly um, it can be you know change is disruptive anyway but but there's risk in change and there's very little help for a lot of these sort of changes we're making but if you get there and if you start working with it, it, it can be more profitable for a start because it has to be because, you know, farming has to be profitable to, to, to keep going. But it'll be better for the farmer and it'll be better for the environment. And I think there's there's great sort of encouragement in that, that it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's kind of to be embraced and to be encouraged instead of sort of feared and sort of, um, you know, fought in terms of, you know, just leave us alone. We're fine. We, we definitely have the power to change. Um, but again, you know, cautiously and, and, and with, with help and not sort of too draconian and forced down people. Rob, you're part of a farmer-led initiative called BASE Ireland, which stands for Biodiversity, Agriculture, Soil and Environment. Tell us more about this group and its approach to farming. So yeah, BASE is going around uh, probably nearly, I'd say, eight or ten years now, and I'm only in it sort of four or five. And uh, what it is, it's it's a discussion group first and foremost, where farmers come together and they thrash these things out. And you hear an awful lot about targets and ambitious targets set by governments and set by everybody for for all the changes that are going to happen and Cara, you, i'm sure you've heard it every time that it makes everybody happy the higher the ambition but the, the the thing is how do you actually do it is often missing the actual how the actual you know on the ground when you talk about you know um cutting you know pesticide use cutting fertilizers changing anything that's happening the how is is where it's won and lost and and what you have is um great amount of information on the internet sort of open source information where this is you know heavily developed in America and, and France and places, but in an Irish context where, you know, we get 40 inches of rain in the year here in Cork. So the, the interpreting of, of the systems and of the, the, the foundations, let's say the principles is based on to get that working in the soil in Cork and the soil in Carlow and the soil in Mead and Louth, there's sort of a, a very much a local aspect to this. So, so BASE has actually, you know, sort of gone out and started and actually made the mistakes and, and seen the benefits and through the ups and downs of actually applying some of this information to our own farming systems, um, completely farmer-led, no funding. And uh, we're kind of, um, you know, there's a great social aspect to it. So made some really good friends in the group, 
but it's sort of a, a change of thinking or a change of attitude. Let's start looking at the causes of some of the problems instead of just treating the symptoms and sort of take maybe some of the independence back to the farmer where there's a, a huge amount of money spent every year um, you know, to grow these crops and, and, and markets can change, weather can change and suddenly the margin is very slim so if, if you can start, you know, taking control of your business a bit more and making some of your own decisions and stepping away from some of the more conventional high input, high output systems where you turn over a lot of money, but the bit left at the end is, I ask any farmer, these hardworking men are, are spun out in a system where they're pushing, pushing, pushing for more and actually ending up with so little for the farmer themselves. So that's what BASE is kind of about, to sort of tease out the different methods of how to actually make these changes and, and by no means perfection, by no means have it all figured out, but just starting to ask the right questions and starting to allow ourselves to open our minds and um, all the ideas in base have to stand up to scrutiny. So there's great discussions and arguments and we don't agree 100% on how any of this works, but we're definitely developing an understanding as to how it can work and the potential in it is massive. Well, it always brings me joy to hear from passionate farmers growing food while also being mindful of nature. Thanks to Rob Coleman for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Stay tuned as coming up next, Minister of State Pippa Hackett will tell me more about her green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, the government's Minister of State for Land Use and Biodiversity, Pippa Hackett, joins us on Down to Earth. Welcome, Minister Hackett. Thank you, Cara. It's great to be here. Well, it's so opportune to talk to you for this episode of Down to Earth as we've been discussing the future of food in Ireland and you have a lifetime of experience in this topic. I think that listeners will be really interested to know you actually have a PhD relevant to your ministry. So tell us more about what you studied before you got into politics. Um, well, I suppose my primary degree was in agriculture. I, I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, I grew up in County Mayo, but very much surrounded by farms and really, you know, liked the outdoor life, nature, um, the environment. We used to walk, I remember, with my parents and my brother across fields that weren't ours, but, you know, see lots of things. You know, back in the day, you could see things like newts and lots of bog cotton. It's quite a, a peaty area I grew up in. Um, you know, just lots and lots of things. And actually, you know, when I, when I would go back after, you know, years and years later, a lot of those things weren't there anymore. So I suppose I was very much in tune with what was happening in my environment, you know, from my youth. But yeah, my primary degree then was, was agriculture. I went on to do a, a postgraduate in equine science in UCD. And I ended up doing a PhD in UL, actually in equine biomechanics I suppose it was I was always quite passionate about horses um, but my I suppose the PhD look I think studying and research and having a scientific background will help anyone um, in their future and it certainly helps me in my um, in my role at the moment. You and your husband own a beef farmer in County Offaly that used to be a conventionally farm but you've switched to a fully organic system which which was quite a leap I would imagine so what drove that decision? Um, yeah, we converted to organic farming about seven or eight years ago. Um, I think we just, um, I think it's for a start, it's a privilege to, to own land and to be able to manage it. And um, we were very much, I suppose, in tune with, um, you know, what, what, how our farm fitted in with the environment. Um, and 
there was a philosophical aspect, I suppose, in me that I thought it was a much better way to farm. We had a young family. The idea of bringing them up on an organic farm was nice. And um, yeah, we made the, the switch. We made a few adjustments before we did. We changed our breed of cattle and we changed the breed of sheep we had. You know, that would be slightly more in fitting with um, how they would be produced on an organic farm. But listen, it's the best decision we ever made on our farm. We were, you know, we couldn't recommend it highly enough. Um, and I think it just makes us better farmers as well. You know, we think a little bit more about what we're doing and how we interact with nature. And we really have to use nature to, to help us farm, um, perhaps in a way that you don't have to as a conventional farmer. What were the kind of benefits to your life that, that would give you such an endorsement of organic farming? <laughs> Um, well, I suppose directly, uh, it, we felt it was a little bit more relaxed. You weren't so tied in with the timeframes of farming, you know, regularly, if you're putting out fertilizer, you have certain windows to do that, you know, we weren't tied in like that. Um, also, look, I suppose financially, it, it has benefited us. Um, we, you know, our input costs are, are significantly reduced because you aren't putting out the fertilizer, you're not using the pesticides, and we actually buy in less feed now because we the breeds we chose um, can can finish off off grass, which is fantastic. Um, and we get a premium price for our products, so we get a you know maybe a fifteen or twenty percent um, better price for our beef and um, a little bit more for our lamb. So uh, between the the lifestyle piece and and the finances, um, it was really a win win. I think this concept that that Irish cattle are fed entirely off grass is, is is kind of a myth that you were mentioning there that livestock tend to be finished on grain. And of course, some of that grain is coming from places like the Amazon and involved in deforestation. So what was involved in actually getting to the point where your cattle were finished off entirely off grass? Um, well, look, we, we, we calve our, our cattle in, in April, um, so, you know, they, um, so that they're out, if you like, they're calved, they go out, they're out all, all pretty much their whole lives, um, and we, we would finish them, say, two years the following, maybe between June and September, so they're maybe 26, 27 months old. Um, just the breed was a big thing for us. We, we ended up moving towards a more, um, it was actually a composite breed uh, we found called Stabilizer, but it was really a composite of very native breeds of cattle. Um, so they don't rely so much on, um, if you like, external inputs. They, they are more adapted to, to surviving off of just grass essentially so that was that was the big decision in our decision and that and that was the real saving for us because farmers can spend thousands and thousands of euros on imported or even domestically grown grain um, and we found we could pretty much do it without so it was a surprise to us it was certainly a surprise to my husband who was a bit dubious about it but it worked and I can only speak from my our own experience with that. But certainly I think those the type of breed people will choose will will have an effect on that. So I think it's um, really important to, to consider those things if you're ch thinking of changing your farming system. We were talking earlier to Dr. Ollie Moore about the low uptake of organic farming in Ireland, which is only about uh, 2%, I think, of all farms in Ireland. So what are your plans to improve this now that you're in government? Um, well, yes, this, um, clearly I'm passionate about organic farming and um, it, was, um, it was great to secure uh, a rather sizable increase in, in funding for, to support the organic farming scheme. So we will be reopening the organic farming scheme. This is the scheme that, you know, it's, it supports and um, enables farmers to convert because there's a two-year process to convert to organic farming, you know, to sort of rid your, rid your farm and the lands of, of, uh, of 
the ills, if you want to say, of, of, of um, regular farming. And um, our, the government and, and my department want to support farmers to do that. So the scheme will open on the 1st of March. Um, it's open to all farmers. Um, we were hoping to get in maybe between maybe four and 500 new entrants, which would be a sizable chunk of, um, you know, in terms of, of, of new organic farmers. Um, in the event that it's oversubscribed, we will, we will prioritize based on, on the type of farms people have. So, you know, if that is the case, we will prioritize for, for tillage, for dairy and for horticulture. But look, I'm encouraging everyone to apply. Um, and if it is oversubscribed, it gives me a little bit of uh, um, momentum to go back uh, in October and look for more money for organic farming. But yes, we, as you say, the, the levels in Ireland are pretty low. We're only about 2%. The EU average is 7.5 or 8% at the moment. But we did get commitment in the programme for government to aim to increase our, our land area under organic to that EU average within the lifetime of the government. So that's a fairly significant increase. And I hope we, I really look forward to being able to achieve that. So we have about 2,000 organic farms in the country right now out of a total of about 138,000 farms in Ireland. And you're now saying there's funding for another five or 600 farmers to go organic. I mean, that's a substantial increase, but it's not nearly in line with the EU's farm to fork target of having 25% of, of the area in Europe farmed organic in the next 10 years. So how do you think Ireland makes that kind of transformation? Well, I think I suppose the, the, the transformation, you, you, you cannot just, you know, plummet your country into 25% of organics in a, in a short few years. But listen, I think if we, we start on this and we if we can absolutely um, get more farmers interested in it and indeed the consumer interested in it, and there is a very much a growing market for, for organic food, um, both in Ireland and and across Europe, you know, and that's really where we're, you know, we really want to, you know, I suppose, see our own citizens eating more, more organic and indeed locally produced food. Um, but I think we just have to start on that. And look, it is a big jump. Look, if you're Austria and you've got 25 or 22% of your land is organic, it's not such a big jump to get to 25. But for us, um, we are, you know, at at the very bottom, really, of the EU league table for, for organics. It, it's a huge jump. But listen, we have to make it step by step. And I think if we could increase the area over the next few years to, you know, seven or eight percent, that would be a great start, you know, it would really set us on that road. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. My guest is Minister of State Pippa Hackett. Pippa, when it comes to fruit and vegetables, we're importing a huge quantity of vegetables that were once considered our national vegetables, things like potatoes and cabbage and carrots and onions and apples. That puts us at risk regarding our food supply in a changing climate to be so dependent on other countries. So what's being done to help support more production of fruits and vegetables in Ireland? Um, yeah, no, it's a huge point, and it is, it is frustrating for many people to hear those figures and the amount we import um, of, as you say, very traditional things that we can grow here really well. Um, again, within my own remit, I'm responsible for the horticulture sector, and we did um, increase the budget there for the commercial horticulture sector in in in, in this year's budget for um, you know to support them to you know buy the right sort of equipment or whatever capital expenses they need to make on their, their, their farms to, to enable them to produce more or to produce it in a more efficient way. So, I mean, that will be taken up. That would be, that was an increase of 3 million to that fund from 6 million to 9 million. Um, that's a good start. Um, certainly, you know, I'd like to see more of that. I think there's a connection also between um, people 
local consumers and connecting with local growers and indeed local farmers. And I suppose that local food piece is something that's quite important to me also and something I'd like to see um, more supports for. This week, we heard that the horticulture sector is very dependent on peat as a growth medium. And obviously, we're trying to end peat extraction for climate reasons. So vegetable growers might actually end up importing peat from other countries. How do you see this situation playing out in a way that doesn't cause us to essentially export our environmental problems? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult piece, and it it is something that we need to find a solution for. I mean, you're right, peat extraction must must cease, but we absolutely have to support our horticulture sector. So um, I'm delighted, actually, just this week that my colleague Minister Malcolm Noonan has appointed a chair to a working group in his department, um, which will look at the future of of peat for the horticulture sector. Uh, peat is interesting. I mean, the horticulture sector is within my remit. However, peat extraction um, is within the remits of my colleagues, Minister Malcolm Noonan and Minister Eamon Ryan. So it's a cross-departmental problem, if you want. Um, but certainly, I hope over the next number of weeks that that working group will come together. It's going to have you know reps from like the EPA and the National Parks and Wildlife Services. It'll have industry reps on there, um, rep reps from my own department. So we're really hoping that um, that group can work really well, come up with solutions. Look, there are alternatives to, to there are peat-free alternatives. Um, probably on a smaller scale than what absolutely would be needed for commercial horticulture. But look, there, there are starts in, in that. Um, my own department has supported some research into alternatives. So it's just about seeing where that fits um, and, and getting those alternatives in place um, and maybe a different plan to, to maybe peat that already exists, that has already been extracted. Perhaps there's you know, mechanisms there of diverting it to our own domestic horticulture sector. These things all need to be teased out in the group. But I think, look, I, I, I have every faith in the, in the working group to come up with solutions and hopefully that are agreeable to all and, and fit that, as you say. We do not want to be exporting our uh, environmental problems elsewhere. It's been about two years since Ireland was the second country in the world to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. And on this show, we've covered some of the things that might address the climate emergency. But biodiversity doesn't seem to be getting nearly the same attention. How do you see us addressing the biodiversity crisis between now and 2030? Uh, I think you're right, Cara, and I, I know it is, again, it's quite frustrating to many groups that it's always climate, climate, climate. I mean, for me, you look, again, um, biodiversity within the department is, is under my remit, and I'm certainly very keen to support it because I think biodiversity is a very tangible thing, especially to farmers, far more tangible than, you know, climate emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. So, you, you know, you can see, you can see improvements in, 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 you know, habitats. You can say, oh, yes, I saw a certain type of species on my farm last year because I did this so I think for me embracing the biodiversity is really crucial to um, us delivering on climate action I think if we get the biodiversity right we certainly will get the, the reduction in the emissions that we need so I mean look even my uh, last week I announced a new a smallish scheme in terms of the money it's 1.25 million but again it's to engage with farmers it's for farmers to engage with NGOs maybe community groups and so forth to bring more biodiversity onto their farms so you know it's, it's an open call. Um, I'm open to all suggestions 
suggestions of how this might work. But again, it's really about appealing to, to farmers, appealing to, to groups to engage and let's do this together because ultimately at the end of the day, if we're going to address the biodiversity crisis in Ireland alone, we are going to need our, our farmers on board. You've gone into government in a surreal and challenging time to say the least. How do you think the COVID pandemic will change our perception of our environment and our actions? Um, I think, well, I, I really hope it does change people's perceptions. I really hope we see the sort of system changes worldwide that um, um, that are needed, really, when we when we see the connections, close connections between maybe the COVID crisis and indeed other other um, viruses and, and pandemics and our interaction with nature and how we you know damage ecology and ecological processes, and that has an effect, direct effect on human health. That connection absolutely has to be more obvious now than ever. Um, and then indeed the connection between how we how we look after ourselves, where we source our food from, what the type of food we eat, um, and how that food is produced obviously has an effect on the environment and, and the ecologies within um, those processes must, must operate. So um, I think people are certainly more aware of where they get their food. I mean, a, a good example I saw was my local farmer's market last year in Tullamore. Now, it's been there for a number of years. Um, but last year, I think there was an absolute spike in, in interest in it. There was more local consumers going. Look, fair enough, lockdown probably helped with that. But certainly there are plenty of supermarkets in Tullamore also. But, you know, there was more and more people choosing to go to a, a local farmer's market. I just thought it was a real um, something really positive to come out and, you know, a chink of light of what maybe hopefully lies ahead. Absolutely. My thanks to Minister of State Pippa Hackett for giving us a taste of her green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening and thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, we'll take a walk on the wild side to explore Ireland's nature and wildlife. But until then, stay curious.